Is the Lord's Prayer still relevant for us today? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Show. I'm Alex Goodwin here with Paul Caminiti and Glenn Powell. This is the last episode in our short series on the Lord's Prayer where we've been making the case that the prayer Jesus taught his disciples was calling on God to bring about a new exodus. We've gone line by line through the prayer and showed how every piece connects the historical moment of Jesus's final days back to the exodus story and praying that God would initiate a bigger and grander rescue. So the question we want to address today is if each line of Jesus's prayer is tied to the work he was about to do on the cross, what does the prayer mean for Christians today? Yeah, that's right, Alex. And that's, of course, always the end game. Uh, I mean, it's great to get all this background information on the Bible, but at the end of the day, you want to make sure that it's speaking to us today and we do that appropriately, which is why we do the first job of what the Bible meant in its own setting first. So just to review, we need to remember what the Exodus story meant to Israel. The first Exodus from Egypt, along with Israel's restoration in the Promised Land, became their foundational salvation event. When Israel would get into trouble again, they envisioned God coming down and repeating his intervention in the affairs of the world on their behalf. From the time of the prophets right down to the period between the Testaments, Leading up to the time of Jesus, this became an established tradition in Jewish thought. This is part of Israel's eschatology in the First Testament. That is, it's a way of describing the great salvation events God would bring in the last days. This is what everybody's waiting for. So line by line, we've explored how the Lord's Prayer is calling Jesus' disciples to pray for this long-awaited new exodus. It recalls events from the first exodus and urges God to do them again, except now in a bigger and more definitive way in and through the work of Jesus the Messiah. So the prayer is very historically specific, tied to the time of Jesus and his followers in the first century. Yeah, guys, and to clarify this even further and to establish it in its uh, original context, we've offered a fresh rendition of the prayer that uh, more clearly reveals how strong the language is that Jesus, you know, taught his disciples. You know, one of the problems with, um, you know, writing is that we can't always know what the tone was mm -hmm. in which it was spoken. But in this situation, you know, Jesus specifically uses the imperative or the command form of the verbs. And so this prayer is made up of these short sentences and these very strong verbs and so in its day, it would probably have sounded something, you know, like this, Father, make your name holy, bring your kingdom, give us today the bread of tomorrow, forgive us our sins, just as we forgive all who are indebted to us, and don't bring us to the time of trial. And so uh, this prayer has a tone, and we, we don't want to be toned deaf. To it. And so what Jesus was really praying was something like this Father, publicly act to, to reveal and defend your name. Don't do this thing in a corner. Bring your reign down to earth in a, in a tangible way. This is something that people need to see and feel. 
offer the new manna, offer the bread from heaven that will truly give life to this world and forgive people's sins once and for all and bring about this spirit of jubilee where your people are keen to erase each other's debts. And then finally, um, spare your people from having to go through times of great suffering that we know are going to precede the coming of God's final salvation. So, you know, we've spent a lot of time in these previous podcasts um, exposing, showing the threads within the Bible itself. Uh, we've explored other Jewish writings and traditions because we know that this is a new idea for many people, and we're just not used to hearing the Lord's Prayer as a new Exodus prayer. So again, one more time, it is there, <laughs> and you see it in both Matthew and Luke's renditions of the prayer that this is a, a strong new Exodus context. Matthew shares this prayer um, in in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus does what? He goes up onto a mountain. Like who else? Moses, who goes up onto a mountain to deliver God's instructions to the people. And then in the setting of Luke, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, meets up with Moses and Elijah, and they urge him to go to Jerusalem for his own exodus. And so the prayers for the disciples to bring this specific request to the Father, we beg you, see this through, save your people, and bring us another exodus. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys for that summary. And I think what we've covered over the last few episodes has been super interesting and enlightening for me. And in a lot of ways, I think really exciting because I think it adds a real depth of understanding to Jesus's ministry and what he was up to. And I think it makes the whole thing bigger than we're typically used to hearing about. You know, I think it was maybe N.T. Wright, maybe somebody else, I can't remember, said something along the lines of, you know, we've made the cross too small or we've made the gospel too small mm -hmm. and just hyper-focused yeah. it on personal salvation, which is, of course, a very important part of this whole story. But you know, in the context of this new Exodus prayer, we see that Jesus was bringing about this big event, this new Exodus event, rescuing people from the powers of sin and death. Um, you know, this is what the new Passover was all about with his death as a sacrificial lamb. There was his resurrection, his ascension to a place of authority. So there was this kind of like big thing going on, right? This, this rescue and restoration of the people. And you see that in what Jesus went and did on the cross and afterwards was the Lord, the Lord's prayer actually happening, right? God's mm, name yeah. being made holy, his kingdom mm -hmm. actually coming on earth as in heaven. And I think all of that's like a big deal. You know, that's, that's really cool stuff. But for me, I think it raises a couple of questions as well. So the first question I have is, you know, we've shared a lot of background information over the last couple episodes, things that are kind of beneath the surface of the text or going on in the background. So like, what are the chances that any of us reading on our own, just kind of doing regular Bible reading, would have actually seen this stuff? You know, we've used outside sources to put these episodes together. Um, so, you know, if, if readers are doing what we encourage them to do, which is read big, you know, read whole 
literary units and chunks of scripture at a time and strive to understand the Bible better in context, I, I still think very few of us would have caught this connection, right? So, so that's my first question. Then my second question is um, kind of what is this historical specificity of the Lord's Prayer being rooted in this moment in Jesus's ministry? Uh, does that take us take the Lord's Prayer away from us today? So like if it's if it's so rooted in the first century and what Jesus was about to do on the cross, like what does it what does it actually mean for us today? Yeah, those are great questions, Alex. And I think um, it's I'm glad you're being an advocate for our listeners, because I think uh, both of those would be questions that would arise in their minds. And okay, here I need to just have a confession. Right. We need to be honest about this. I didn't discover this new Exodus reading by myself. Now, I like to think I read the Bible pretty well. At least I've been working at it for a long time. I don't know how good it is, but I've been trying, right? In my head, I know all the things we emphasize in this podcast. I know about reading whole books and understanding what kind of writing they are, putting those books together to get a handle on the Bible's big story. That's, that's a huge deal. Like, what's the meta narrative, as they say? Knowing that it's important to read the whole thing through the Jesus lens. Jesus is the center of the scriptures in all kinds of ways, knowing how important it is to read in context with as much understanding about ancient Near Eastern history and culture as I can, all of this, right? And it's with me, of course, as with anybody, I think it's a work in progress, but at least I know the basics. However, I still don't think I would have ever come up with a new Exodus angle on the Lord's Prayer, trying to do all of that if someone else hadn't taught me about it. And guess what? That's okay. I think none of us can expect to see everything, to discover all the hints and put them together for some amazing, fresh, really helpful understanding of every passage we read in the Bible. That's just not possible, and it's not really the expectation. But it's not also a problem, I think, as long as we stay in the mode of being constant learners and also staying humble. The problem is when we start to think we already know everything we need to know, there's nothing new to be said, and we quit listening attentively to others. That is, we quit learning. That's, that's the first answer, I think, to this question is, um, we didn't come up with this new Exodus interpretation. We found it by reading other people, and then we're just trying to share it. Yeah, I like where you're going with this, Glenn. And, you know, this is precisely... One of the big things that we emphasize on this podcast is the absolute necessity of reading in community. You know, whoever said that individual readers are supposed to figure out everything by themselves. And so our vision for stellar Bible reading is that reading in community is kind of the de facto approach to reading mm. scripture. And so if someone were, you know, to come to you and say, you know, are you a serious reader of scripture? Hopefully you would say yes. Then the next follow-up question is, mm -hmm. who do you read with? Um, are, you, are you actively reading with, with other people? And so, of course, uh, the low-hanging fruit for that would be that we would be part of groups, whether they're friends or family or other people in their church. But there's another element, and it's very important, and I think reading with others also should include reading and learning from people 
who have given their lives to understanding the Bible in depth. That, too, is part of uh, reading in community. It doesn't mean that uh, everybody needs to read academic books on the Bible, uh, but there are people who make it their job to read these scholarly books, to watch the academic YouTube presentations, and then to kind of translate or be a bridge of these amazing ideas into language that all of us can understand. And we would hope that this would be something that pastors would do. And we would also like to think that that's one of the things that we do here on the Bible Reset podcast. So, you know, we don't, guys, we don't, um, we don't talk a lot about ourselves and our backgrounds. But, you know, just uh, for the sake of clarity, um, none of us on this podcast, technically speaking, are, are scholars. Now, Glenn gets invited to speak at uh, scholarly events and uh, to contribute to scholarly journals. He's a voluminous reader. Um, and, but, but we have taken steps to do just what we talked about, is to immerse ourselves into all that we can about the Bible. In fact, uh, Glenn and Alex, who both live in Colorado Springs, uh, belong to a weekly book club that meets on Friday mornings at a Panera Bread called uh-huh. Ents, and, and that's what they do. They read theology books, and, uh, and it's a mixture of about um, eight people, lay people, um, and then people that also join online to, uh, to listen in. But that's kind of the vision, and this is something that that everyone can do. Glenn, remind us what what yeah, is. Yeah, well, from the Lord of the for? Rings, of course. And and the reason we got the name is one of the members actually said, you know, we we go at about an int like pace in this book club, meaning we read so slowly, just like when there's an int moot, a gathering of ints, takes them forever to talk something through in that movie. And that's how we read books very, very slowly. Yep. Um, kind of a few pages at a time because we're going in depth, but we figure we have all the time in the world. Like, what's what's the hurry? And what I love about the Ents, Paul, is that it's really regular people. I mean, this is not a bunch of pastors. It's not a bunch of scholars. Um, there's uh, somebody who stocks the shelves at Target overnight. There's a carpenter, an insurance representative, a retired administrative assistant from the Navigators. I mean, just a group of people who are really regular people. And not not trained academically in theology or anything like that, but we read solid books. And what's really fun is to kind of take our time, read these books. Um, all of them are kind of focused on some aspect of the Bible in particular, and we just work our way through and see if we can figure out what they're being talked about. But I think the growth has been amazing. I mean, this group has been going for uh, at least twenty years. On Friday mornings, um, the, the makeup has changed as people have come and gone and moved away and whatnot. But it's it's just a fact about reading in community, being in community with people around the Bible and exploring serious ideas. And I think together, we've learned more than we ever would have just being by ourselves. Yeah, that's really good, Glenn. And so I, I think, you know, there's there's challenges in two directions here. One is don't ever underestimate what you yourself can learn, especially from good reading. Uh, but it, on the other hand, the flip side of that coin is let's be c- 
committed to being open-minded learners, mm. as the, the Bible Project guys remind us again and again. These Bible writers were literary ninjas. Uh, this is a rich, dense text. Um, it is ancient meditation literature, and it really does take a village, right, for us to be doing it and to doing it well. So, you know, just for example, um, maybe here in the future, you'll be in your church Bible study, either through the Gospel of Luke or studying the Lord's Prayer. And now knowing what you know, you get to be the one that can tell the rest of the group because they're reading in community with you. You can be the one that exposes and talks about the Lord's Prayer being a new Exodus prayer. This is how it works. Uh, good learnings get shared. And in the end, the body of Christ gets built up. really helpful and um i've i've certainly gained a lot from being part of this ents book club you know like you said paul none of us are scholars or theologians by trade like i have a marketing degree cool um <laughs> but i can pick up you know these books just like anybody else can and it's it's a bit of a a stretch at times to to keep up with it um but there's always a payoff mm. through you know just constantly diving into these books and and unearthing some of these discoveries that these these people have made that a lot of times don't really get out into the open or into the kind of popular popular culture that sort of thing so it's been super transformative for me well, i was just going to say one more thing about that and i think not to discourage people from reading alone right because i think what happens is if you're committed to both so you read alone you might not catch everything i mean i could have read the lord's prayer passage as i mentioned so many times and never have seen this new Exodus angle. But if you're reading scripture well regularly on your own, then when you first hear something from your pastor or in a book or in uh, your, your immersed book club that you're in or whatever context you're gathered around the Bible with other people, if you've been reading alone, then I think you're grounded in the material so that these things will be picked up by you more easily. And I think, and you can bring things that other people don't see. So I think these things work together. It's not an either or, read alone or read in community. I think we're advocating for doing both. Yeah. Um, the problem, I think, has been, especially in the modern church, when the first time everybody could have their own Bible, we've emphasized discipleship in the church, a model based on reading the Bible alone. Um, and people think they have to do that, and they have to mm -hmm. figure out everything and I think we just need to bring more balance into the discipleship vision that includes people reading the Bible together, which is really where the Bible came from in its original setting. It was always a community event, and that's what we've lost. So that's what we're trying to get back. Yep. That's a good word. Okay, cool. Um, how about the second question about the Lord's Prayer specifically? You know, we've talked about uh, how it was historically rooted in this moment before Jesus went into Jerusalem. Um, how is it still relevant for us today? Yeah, this is a, a type of a, a bigger question, I think, that often comes up for people. I think the more people hear, um, you have to read the Bible in context, you have to understand what it was saying in its first setting. Sometimes people can feel like that's taking the Bible away from them. Like it's not speaking to them anymore, it's just speaking to the first audience in the ancient Near East, in Israel. 
And this is where I think the right way to think about this is the more we learn about the historic specificity of the text and what it meant then, it actually becomes richer for us. So the answer is, is the, is the Lord's Prayer still relevant? It is. Can we still pray it reasonably and authentically today? We can. It's relevant for us now, and here's why. Part of this comes from knowing how the story of the Bible, and the New Testament in particular, actually works. So Israel's hope before the coming of Jesus was multifaceted. It included a lot of things, the end of exile, the forgiveness of Israel's sin, the making of a new covenant, the appearance of the Messiah, a great new king, son of David, who would rescue Israel from their enemies, and finally, the return of Yahweh himself to live with his people once again in a new temple. All of these things had been lost, and Israel was looking for them to come back. So as we've learned, one phrase that summed up a lot of this for Israel was the coming of a second or new exodus. So the gospel writers are clearly working with this idea in describing the work and ministry of Jesus, and they're doing that for us so we understand what Jesus was doing. And now we know that Jesus himself taught his closest followers to pray for this new exodus to come, right then and there, in the work of Messiah Jesus himself. But here's the thing. What Jesus did in the first century began the work of the new exodus, but did not complete it. Scholars would call this inaugurated eschatology. This simply means that with the coming of Jesus, all the great hopes of Israel began to be fulfilled, but were not yet completely fulfilled. That's good, Glenn. And, you know, frankly, this is why uh, the coming of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus uh, in the New Testament story were shocking and surprising to those first century um, listeners. Uh, they were expecting that the kingdom would come in one fell swoop, when in reality, mm it comes in two stages and not just one. And so, uh, you know, Jesus had, had told them this and gave them hints along the way, you know, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. This is stage one of his coming. And his first stage was coming to save first, and then second, um, was going to be the end of all things and the final, the final restoration. So the First Testament, you know, Jewish followers of God were looking for God to return as the judge, again, to heal, to restore Israel and the world. And they envisioned this, this is very important, as one giant event. And then Jesus arrives and, you know, he kind of you know, kind of messes around a little bit. He goes around <laughs> teaching and healing, and it doesn't look like anything like what what the early Jewish followers of God were expecting. And frankly, um, this is what surprised and confused people like John the Baptist and Jesus' own disciples. When John is in prison, and he sends his disciples to Jesus, and he says, are you the one who's coming, or should we be looking for somebody else? Because this sure doesn't feel like salvation. And so I think that's important for us to remember. And just as an aside, um, you know, I think we sometimes wonder 
why Orthodox Jews don't believe in Jesus. And one of the reasons, and I think one of the things that they struggle with, is that their mindset was that the coming of their long-awaited Messiah was going to be a radical intervention where he would immediately take the throne and not a Jesus who would, uh, who would die on a cross. Mm, yeah, that's exactly right. So the, the sum of this is, I think, um, what it means for us is that it makes sense to keep praying for the complete coming of God's new Exodus event. So think of the questions this way. Do we still need to be rescued from the powers of sin and death? Does the world? Does the world know who God is? Do they honor his name as holy and powerful? Has God's kingdom fully arrived? Are all things made new? Are we yet feasting at the messianic banquet in the new creation? Are we in the promised land or are we in the wilderness on the way? Has the need for the forgiveness of wrongdoing and all our debts gone away? Are the great trials still testing God's people? I think we can, for instance, ask the Christians in Ukraine today whether the trials have gone away, and there's no need for God to save them from the trials. In short, have we yet seen a full revelation of God's final rescue and restoration, his second exodus? I think because of the surprise of the two stages, we, just like the disciples in the time of Jesus, have every reason to keep fervently praying this new exodus prayer. God still needs to hear those imperatives, those once-and-for-all events that still need to be definitively revealed, so that the aorist tense of those verbs, remember that means they are once-and-for-all, non-repeating events, those, that aorist tense has to continue, and those imperatives have to continue, and so I think it makes complete sense for us to keep praying. We don't merely need inaugurated eschatology, to use the academic language, but we need completely realized eschatology, fully arrived. We need the final things to come completely, for God's will to be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. And until that happens, the Lord's Prayer is as relevant as it ever was. Hmm. Yeah, thanks, guys. That's, that's super helpful, kind of living into that already, but not yet sort of reality, being able to to pray a prayer that was, um, that was prayed before, I guess what we would call the already, but then we can still pray it for the not yet, mm -hmm. you know, kind of still repeat that prayer. Yeah. Well, we think that it would be appropriate to close the series by actually praying this prayer with our new understanding of, uh, of everything that it means. And I thought we might do something that C.S. Lewis talks about in his book, Letters to Malcolm, which is actually what he says is festooning the Lord's Prayer with his own, you know, clarifying thoughts, adding words and phrases here and there to kind of decorate the prayer, kind of like adding ornaments to a Christmas tree, you know, festooning the prayers with our own thoughts and our own prayers. So in ancient Judaism, the ending of any prayer or praise to God was improvised by whoever was praying. So we'll go ahead and do that too. So here we go. We make bold to pray the words our Lord himself taught us. Father, if you are our father, the God of the ancient Exodus and the God of our new Exodus, then show us that we're your children. Come down and save us. Make your name holy. 
we ask that you would glorify your name in front of everybody. And as you did with Israel, that you would rescue us, your people, and let the nations see who you are. Uh, because right now, they really don't know. Bring your kingdom, God. Clear the way for the coming of your reign in power. Establish your gracious rule and our final salvation right here on earth where we live. Give us today the bread of tomorrow. And when you do these things, also bring us the bread of the future. Seat us at the great messianic banquet and give us the bread of life so that we'll never be hungry again. Forgive us our sins just as we forgive all those indebted to us. Father, we are weary and your world is weary of our sins. We pray that you would grant us the final pardon and forgive all of our wrongdoings and all of our debts. We look forward to the day when you restore us to our good land in the new creation. And in turn, we open our hearts uh, to do the same for all of those who have wronged us or who owe us anything. And don't bring us to the time of trial. Father, we know that the time of testing, the great trial, must come before your salvation. Save us from this trial. If it is your will, spare us from it completely. But if we must face it, sustain us within it. Don't let us fail the test. So now we praise you, Lord. Your name is holy and great. It is above all names. You are the creator, the great king, and we honor you. May all the greatness and all the power and all the majesty be yours forever, in this age and in the age to come. May it be so. Amen and amen. So yes, we pray this new, new Exodus prayer, and I pray that as we all pray this prayer from now on, we will remember the full, dip, deep, and rich meaning that Jesus had when he taught this to his disciples. So let it be so. Let the new Exodus come once and for all. And just one final comment I think is a neat thing we learned from one of the early church fathers. Clement of Alexandria once passed on a saying of Jesus that he said was part of the oral tradition. Ask for the great things, so God will add to you the little things. I think that's what the Lord's Prayer does. It boldly asks for the greatest things of all. Yeah, that's a good word to end on. And thank you guys for your thoughts and for the work that we've been able to put into this to um, hopefully show our listeners sort of a case study, I think, of Lord's Prayer and how it helps us see what it means to read Scripture well. I think we need to really form a habit of making these connections, especially connections between Jesus's work and Israel's story. We need to right. read in community with others, um, you know, whether that's in person at a Panera or kind of at a distance by, by reading from people who have uh, dedicated their lives to helping others gain a bigger and greater understanding of the Bible. And, you know, Every time when we run scripture through those filters of narrative and context and those sorts of things, it is more work. Like we're not going to um, 
just kind of shirk around that and say that it's easy to do, but it always comes out meaning more for us in the end. It's not just kind of an exercise in uh, scholarship, but it always just comes back to to actually have deeper and, and broader in implications for Christians today. So uh, thank you guys for this work, and we hope it's been helpful to our listeners as well. As always, the Bible Reset Podcast is brought to you by Changemakers, our community of donors who give monthly gifts of any amount to help us create resources that change the way people read the Bible. If you appreciate this podcast and you'd like to support our work, you can learn more at instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.